come before you this morning desiring you to be Lord of our lives. Father, when we talk about you being Lord, I know it's easy for us to just say it and not really mean it. For us to sort of just, well, yeah, you're God, you know. But when we say that you are Lord, it means that you are the king of our lives. That if we turn over our lives to you and we are no longer king, then you are king. But only when that happens. And God, we want you to be our God. We want you to be our king. We want you to be our sovereign. We want you to be our ruler. We want you to be the grand poobah of our lives and not ourselves. Father, Lord, one of the ways that we can do that is just take a moment and go to you and just admit that we are not all that. Father, just admit that we are broken and rebellious and that we don't do what you want us to do and that we have sin in our lives. So we're just going to take a moment, each of us right now, to go to you and ask forgiveness for that. Let's just do that. Father, forgive us for those things, Lord, and allow us to be able to live our lives according to your plan rather than our plan. God, we pray this morning that you, when we thank you for all that you've done and what you will do in our lives, and that is our expectation, that is our hope. God, we pray this morning that you would send your Holy Spirit to be in our lives, to fill us up, to complete us, to make us to be the person you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, we've been working through our series on a Christmas prophecy, and um, we are in our fourth part of our series. And the whole idea here behind the Christmas prophecy was to talk a little bit about prophecy, but also to talk a little bit about what it would be like to live before Christmas. I mean, all of us here, we live 2,000 years after the birth of Jesus. We live after Christmas. It's easy for us to understand Christmas because we live after the fact. And so we are just reflecting on what we already know. But for thousands of years, the people of God lived before Christmas ever took place. What would it be like to live back then? What would it be like to not know anything about Christmas other than the fact that God was going to send a Messiah into our world? And so our four-week series, Looking Forward to the Birth of Jesus, we're going to do exactly that. Instead of looking back at Christmas, we're going to look forward. We're going to ask what it would be like to live during a time where we were awaiting the Messiah rather than looking back towards it. Let me give an example. We are 2,000 years after Christmas, but for at least three or 4,000 years there were of recorded history before Jesus came. And this is what people knew. You know, Job, one of the first books of the Bible ever written down, Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives and one day he will walk upon the earth. But that's not a lot of information, right? Other than God's going to send a Messiah, that doesn't really tell us anything about the Messiah, right? But we now, today, we know his name. We know his parents' name. We know his mama's name, his daddy's name. We know his social security number. We know his date of birth. We know all kinds of stuff about him, right? But for thousands of years before, people didn't know. What was their expectation? What was their hope? What was their interest? What was God speaking to them about? So here's our strategy. Um, the first week we talked about a prophecy of Jesus' origin, and we looked at Micah 5, where it said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and he would be of the house of David. And we started with a very simple prophecy, but also a very interesting prophecy. Let me talk a little bit about prophecy here this morning. We're going to be talking about prophecy a lot, but let me talk a little bit about prophecy, because <clears throat> a lot of times when we use that word prophecy, we've been talking about last couple of weeks, 
prophecy we usually define in the world out there as being someone telling the future, right? We think of Nostradamus or we think of this and that and the other. But biblical prophecy, more times than not, 90% of the time, is a foretelling rather than a foretelling. What does that mean? In other words, most biblical prophecy is like the prophecies of Isaiah that we're going to be looking at today, where he goes to the king and says, Hey, king, you're evil. God doesn't want you to live like this. He doesn't want his people like this. You need to change. That is foretelling. Foretelling is when you tell the future. But most biblical prophecy is not concerned about the future. Like I said, we're going to get into that a little bit more today. But the first week we talked about a prophecy of Jesus' origin. And we talked about the fact that Jesus, one of the prophecies, uh, sort of an odd one, is the fact that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. And we talked about that Bethlehem was podunk. It was boonie. It was way out in the middle of nowhere. It was worthless. We decided that the most podunk place around here was Willows, California. If you're from Willows, I apologize. I've never been to Willows. That was the Willows. That you guys, you pick Willows as being that place that was podunk or most podunk around here, right? It would be like saying that the king of the world was going to be born in Willows. But people would say, nothing good comes from Willows, California, right? And if you're here from Willows, I apologize. But nothing good comes from Willows, right? Same way. People say, well, nothing good comes from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Bethlehem. So it's the same idea. So the second week we talked about a prophecy of Jesus coming. We looked at Isaiah 7. We looked at this, you know, where Isaiah says that the, there would be a, a, a lady who, would, who is a virgin who would bear a child, and that child would be a symbol of the continuation of the house of David. And we talked about how biblical prophecy works, which is that most biblical prophecy was fulfilled in the day and time at which it was spoken, but was also fulfilled later in a big way. So there was some child who was born in the court of Ahaz um, who was a symbol, as we talked about two weeks ago, who was a symbol to the king of Ahaz, the king of Ahaz, king of Judah, Ahaz, who was a descendant of David. Why was this important? Well, because David was the one that God had established to be the king of Israel and the Messiah was going to come from him. But Ahaz was a particularly evil king. He was also a particularly wicked king. And so instead of going out and engaging the Assyrians, he would hide under his throne, quivering like a little girl, saying, oh, woe is me. My whole race, my whole lineage is going to be wiped out. And so Isaiah came with a message from the Lord that, no, even though you are weakling and a wimp and evil and all these other things, that God is not going to wipe you out because the Messiah is going to come from your line. And in fact, as we know also, hindsight here, that his son would actually be a great king, Hezekiah, one of the best kings of all. All right, so now if you're thinking, well, kings, what does this have to do with me? We'll get to that. Last week we talked about a prophecy of Jesus' birth. We looked at Luke 1, which is a short-term prophecy, talking about Jesus being born um, of Mary. Mary was virgin. Mary was waiting on God. Jesus was born, and it was a surprise to her. She was astonished to hear the news from the angel. Um, and the fact that he would be the Messiah, right? We talked about this last week. David was a small, small M Messiah. Jesus is the big M Messiah. All right. J David was the first king. He was the prototype. J uh, Jesus is the once and future king, the eternal king from the Bible's perspective. We also talked about the fact that if you ever watch Lord of the Rings, Sword in the Stone, what's that one? What's Sword in the Stone? The uh, King Arthur one, right? Any of those things, they all take their plot twist from the Bible, okay? And so the Bible talks over and over again about Jesus being the once and future king, the eternal king of the house of David, 
who has come to restore people back to God. All right, today we're going to look at a prophecy of Jesus' glory. Um, we're going to look in Isaiah 9 and pick it up from there. Very famous passage, but we're going to look at it in a little more detail because the danger will be is if we read it from the surface, as we're going to talk about here in a minute. All right, uh, we're going to see what the Bible says. Isaiah chapter 9. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 9, go ahead and do that because you're going to want your finger on this passage. I'm going to be turning there. It's going to be up on the big screen as well, um, but you'll want to open your Bibles and actually turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Uh, all right, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 9. In the Old Testament, 1 through 7. All right, let's look at this. Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verse 1 through 7. Here it is. Um, now, let me just preface it by saying, we, if you remember from two weeks ago, right, this is Isaiah, and he's speaking during the time of Ahaz. This was a bad time. It was a, it, there was a lot of war. There was a lot of struggle. There was a lot of strife. And the strife and the struggle and the war and the conflict was only increasing. Okay? So here's what Isaiah says to Ahaz 800 years before Jesus was born. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on for forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. Now let me just pause right there. Even if you've never been in church before in your entire life, before this Sunday, when I read something from the Bible that says Galilee will be filled with glory. What do you think of? Well, Jesus was from the region. We know he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, but he was from where? Galilee, right? That was the region where Jesus was from. So when we read this passage, we're like, aha, there's going to be glory in Galilee. Well, that sounds a little bit like Jesus and like his ministry, right? But here's the other thing that you need to know because of the way the prophecy works. First of all, is Galilee was also, in the time of Ahaz, what? It was a border region separating him from his enemies, right? And so what happened is God's promising that there's going to be a great glory here in the short term because your enemies are not going to be able to destroy you. But as we know, looking back, hindsight being 2020, we know it's also a reference to what Jesus is going to do and who he's going to be, and the hope that he will bring into the world in this little small region called Galilee. Now, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. And so we see that people on the border regions who live in a fear of Assyria and these other nations attacking them, there's going to be hope, there's going to be light, but even more so for all of us today, there is a hope and light that comes because this is where Jesus came into the world to bring uh, freedom for us, as we'll talk about. For you will break the yoke of their slavery. Who's this you, right? Is this Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, or is this Jesus? For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift a heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. All right, let's talk about this. God's plan will come to fruition. Three ideas this morning, two prophecies that we're going to break down here. Uh, first idea let's talk about is that God's plan will come to fruition. What do I mean by when I say fruition? Who knows what that word means? 
good word, but it's not a common word. Who knows what I mean by that? Well, when you see the word fruition, since you guys are going to be quiet this morning, when you see the word fruition, just think of the first five letters, which is fruit, right? So fruition means to what? Bear fruit. That's a good way of thinking about it. So God's plan will bear fruit. It will come to fruition. It's going to happen. This is the thing about God's prophecy. Let's break this down. Because here's what happened. We know that God prophesied about the Messiah. And we know that there happened to be a guy named Jesus born in Bethlehem, sort of like what the Bible said. What does this have to do with prophecy? And what does it have to do with us? And what does it have to do with Christmas? God's plan will come to fruition. When God prophesies something, it will bear fruit. Biblical, and by the way, if you have your handout, you're welcome to follow along with me. Biblical prophecy is laser-focused around God's plan. This is really important for us to understand because it's very easy to sort of believe the idea of prophecy out there, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But when we talk about biblical prophecy and we talk about when God says something's going to happen, it is solely and completely focused around God's plan for this world. People may say, well, why doesn't the Bible, to just prove it to everyone, why doesn't the Bible just say in the year 2010 that um, a guy by the name of Ramir Ramirez will live in San Jose and will win the lottery, right? That would prove it to everyone that God really is real. Well, except for the fact that it really won't prove it because people will doubt it and they'll you know, have questions. And in fact, when we think about it, God has actually done that in Jesus. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but I mean, when you think about it, Jesus, you can't get more podunk or more small than Bethlehem, and yet God predicted the Messiah would come from Bethlehem. It's not like millions of people were born in Bethlehem. In fact, throughout history, Bethlehem has always been a very small place. So it's not like there's been billions of people born there of whom the Messiah could come from. There's only been a small number of people in the history of the world, probably hundreds of thousands, maybe over the last 6,000 years, um, but not still in the history of the world that many people. Biblical prophecy is laser-focused around God's plan. Why does the Bible have prophecy in it if it's not to prove to us who God is? Well, what it's for is to demonstrate God's plan to all of us and to be focused around that. Listen, what passes for prophecy in our world today is random acts of calamity or good feelings, right? Let me give an example. You know, we got this movie 2012, right? What does 2012 mean? Does anybody know, like, what's going on with this? 2012 the end of the world well it's okay it's not going to be the end of the world but yes people think it is you know Y2K you know if you remember that how many of you remember Y2K okay some of you really were asleep the last decade right Y2K right everybody thought it was going to be you know the end of the world or the end of whatever and, and <clears throat> the problem is is that it's a prophecy that didn't happen now here's the 2012 I haven't seen the movie um, but the gist of it is, is that the Mayan calendar supposedly ends in 2012, and the world's going to end, right? And you know what? Prophecies always seem to be one of two kinds. The world is going to end. That's a big, that's, we see that a lot, right? There's lots of prophecies about that. There's also prophecies about how good times are going to come your way. Hey, have you ever been to a psychic? You know, you pay money, they read your palm, or, or give you a psychic reading. It's a rhetorical question, but uh, <laughs> for those of you thinking it, no. Have you ever been, though, and then tell you, you're going to have a terrible life. You're going to die very soon. You're not going to find love. It's going to be a miserable life for you, right? Would you go back to that psychic? No. Why? Why not? Because 
When you go to them, they tell you what? Oh, you're going to find love. Love is right around the corner. You're going to get rich soon. You're going to have a special life, right? That's what they tell you. Why? Because they want repeat business. So prophecy in our world tends to be either acts of calamity or just random good things are going to happen to you because they want to keep you sort of hook, sinker along, um, keep you along hook and sinker, right? And so the thing that makes biblical prophecy both radically different and also, by the way, radically true is the fact that biblical prophecy is focused on God's plan, laser-focused on God's plan for you and I and for the world. That's what it is. God doesn't care about telling us in the Bible whether we'll win the lottery or whether the end of the world will come or anything like that because God is concerned about prophesying about how he has set his captive free, as we're going to talk about, how people can be right with God, how things can be different in our lives. That is the whole sake of prophecy. Everything that is prophesied about in the Bible is to draw people back to God. That's it. No end of the world. No feel good just to string you along. Solely about relationship with God is where prophecy comes to play. Biblical prophecy is laser focused around God's plan, and it's also worth paying attention to. Why is biblical prophecy worth paying attention to? Well, let me ask you this question. If the end of the world was really going to come, would it be important to know that fact? If an asteroid, if NASA predicted, prophesied, foretold that an asteroid was going to come and destroy the world in one year, would we want to know about that? Yeah, we probably would, right? And so, in the same way, biblical prophecy is worth paying attention to because if it is proven to be accurate and good and valuable then it is, has something to say into our lives. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about all the possibilities in the world, here was a small people in a small part of the world who had a king who they loved, who God appointed, that's David, who was the Messiah, small m, just the anointed one, the one chosen by God. And then God prophesied that through him, that there would be a once and future king who would be able to end all injustice and slavery in the world. Everything to which our brokenness is tied to. And you know what? That, that Messiah, for example, would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is not a very big place. There's not lots of people who were born in Bethlehem. And yet, there's a guy named Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. Now here's the funny thing about Jesus. If you're raised in the West, you, this is what you buy into the West today is very con trying to condition people and our systems of school and government and all that sort of thing wants to convince us that Christianity is a Western religion. And it really only exists in Europe and with white people and with that sort of thing, right? And it is a Western religion. And by the way, if you go around the world, no one's ever heard of Jesus. But many of you here know that to be false. In fact, when you think about it, pretty much everyone in the world has heard of Jesus. Or let me say it another way. Who is more famous in the world? What, who is the most famous person in the entire world? In the entire world. And if you're not a Christian here today, you know it's still Jesus. You know it's still Jesus. Think of anyone else that is more famous than Jesus throughout the entire world, pound for pound. 
even in Muslim countries where he's not allowed to be talked about, he's still just as famous as Muhammad, if not more. If not more. Hey, call me crazy, but God prophesied that there'd be a Messiah born in Podunk Willows, California, Podunk Bethlehem in Galilee, and that he would be the king of the entire world. Wow. Could it be Jesus? What do you think? Maybe? Possibly? If so, isn't biblical prophecy worth paying attention to? Isn't it worth paying attention? If God has been proven to be correct once, twice, three times, isn't it worthwhile paying attention to? We don't pay attention to Y2K or 2012 because we know it's all, you know, smoke and mirrors and fake. But if Jesus is who he says he is, isn't it worth paying attention to? If the prophecies are true, isn't it worth paying attention to? Now, when I say we need to take, a, we need to, uh, take attention, pay attention to prophecies, what this does not mean is trying to use the Bible to figure out days or events or God things or whatever, right? Remember a couple years ago there was a book called The Bible Code that was really popular? And, like, you could sort of do a word search in the, through, in the page of the Bible and you could find out that, you know, we know the day the Bible predicted when John F. Kennedy was going to be assassinated and all this other kind of foolishness, right? Um, and, you know what, that's not, this, first of all, it's not in the Bible, but it's not, that's not what the Bible's concerned about. Why is the Bible not concerned about that? The Bible is concerned about what? One thing, it prophesies about one thing, restoring people back to God. That's what it does. That's its whole purpose. So when I say pay attention to, to, to prophecy, I'm not saying go home and try to guess some hours or days or figure out when 2012 from God's Christian perspective is going to happen. It's all baloney. What I am saying is that God has prophecies in Scripture that have, he has predicted and they have come true. And they are focused solely around one issue, which is us knowing God. And that when we read Scripture with depth and integrity, we find out that it is about a story about God wanting to know us instead of Let's talk about that in our two prophecies here this morning. First, uh, two prophecies that we'll be talking about. First one is the Bible foretold Jesus' deliverance. When I say deliverance, I don't mean that Jesus was delivered. I mean that Jesus delivered other people. Jesus' deliverance for us. So the Bible foretold Jesus' deliverance. Let's look at this. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Picking up in verse 2. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift a heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Lots of ideas about war. Why is there lots of ideas about war? Well, first of all, the world has always been in war. That's true. Um, but during that time, they had a lot of problems with battles and war, and that was what was, you know, the cultural, uh, you know, the cultural discussion at the time was the wars that were going on. So the Bible foretold Jesus' deliverance. Now, the Bible here is talking about how the Messiah would come and would break the yoke of slavery that people live under. Let's talk about what this means. The Messiah would come to free his people from slavery. See, here's the thing. He's talking about this, you know, that there was always a chance. If you lived in Galilee, you lived in these areas, you were poor, you had nothing, right? And an army came in, and if they didn't kill you, they enslaved you, they made you captive. And your whole life then would be over. We talked about two, year, two weeks ago 
about how people live to about 30 years old. That's about it, right? 35, maybe if they had gray hair. And, and the army would come in, and they would, they would take the person, they would kill them, they would enslave them. And the Messiah came to set his people free from slavery. Now, here's the thing that's really important. We want to differentiate between the prophecy to Ahaz and also the prophecy that we're talking about with the Messiah, with Jesus himself. Because the people of Israel at the time, they wanted to be free from evil kings. They wanted to be free from more, more, uh, sorry, more <laughs> attacking armies, marauding, that's what I wanted, marauding armies, attacking armies. They wanted to be free from this. They didn't want to be enslaved anymore. They wanted to be free. When Hezekiah came, they believed that there was a newfound freedom after Ahaz was passed. But even more specifically, from the roots of Jesse, from the house of David, there would come the Messiah who would be the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He would be the one, the once and future king, who would set up a kingdom where slavery and oppression and hurt and brokenness would no longer prevail. The slavery the Bible is speaking of is not just evil kings and bandits, but even more specifically, sin. Let me just ask the question, what motivates evil kings? Love for people, right? Is that what motivates evil kings? What do you think? No, probably not, right? What do you think motivates evil kings? Well, okay, right, but all those things that you say are just a function of what? Sin, brokenness. Their rebellion against God, that's right. Sin is ultimately what does it. And so the slavery that is being referred to in a little way is oppression and evil and stuff like that. Um, but the bigger slavery that Christ, the Messiah, comes to free us from is all brokenness, all sin, all rebellion. All right, look at this. Here's the thing. The Messiah would bring peace rather than war. Now this is what's really interesting. <clears throat> The people who walk in darkness, <clears throat> sorry, keeps on, and then uh, for you, the Messiah, will break the yoke of their slavery and lift a heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. There will be fuel for the fire. And so God was going to send his Messiah to free us from the brokenness of sin, from the struggle that we have, from the issues that we have, that God was going to set us free. And the thing is, is that Messiah would do that by bringing peace rather than war. Now, let's talk about this word peace. Because in our language today, we use peace sometimes to mean a cessation of hostilities, right? Uh, if you grew up in a family where your parents always fought, when they were not fighting, you would call that peaceful, right? But that's not really what the Bible means by peace. The Bible by peace means that we get along really with other people and with God. That in fact that there is not only no conflict, but that there is actually love between people. By the way, if you grew up in a broken family where the people always fought and argued and all that sort of thing, and you call that peace, that's not what peace is, because peace is, would be the parents actually loving each other and respecting each other. And so what happens is God came to not just have a cessation of hostilities between people, but for actually people to love each other. What does the Bible tell us? That the whole sum of everything can be summarized by what? Loving God and loving people. That, my friends, is the biblical idea of peace. And so the Messiah would bring peace rather than war. Now here's what's interesting. Can you see how easy it would be to misread Jesus' coming? Right? I mean, when we read the Bible two-dimensionally, we kind of get messed up. And a lot of people do read the Bible two-dimensionally in our world. 
They're concerned about how God is going to change the now, not the long term. They're asking, God, how can I get more money? How can I have a better life here? Rather than asking what God is going to do to complete their life, to heal their life, to make their entire eternal life and everything in between be the way that God desires it to be. Can you see how easy it would be to misread Jesus' coming? Let me give an example. In the Bible, we see when Jesus came into the world that there were these people called Pharisees, right? Remember the Pharisees? And they argued with Jesus, right? And when we read it two-dimensionally, we see that there were these Pharisees were bad and Jesus was good, right? And that's what we learned in Sunday school, and that's the two-dimensional reading. Well, what does it really mean? Why did these people really not agree with Jesus? The Messiah will enlarge the nation of Israel, and his people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you, his people will rejoice at the harvest, like warriors provide and plunder. But you will break the, sl- the yoke of their slavery from evil kings, from Rome, from the Herodians, from the people who have dominion over Israel at the time of Jesus. And lift the heavy burden of taxation and oppression from their shoulders. You will break the oppressors, you will break Caesar's rod. And you, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian, you will also destroy the army of Rome and the other armies that besiege us on every side. The boots of the warrior in uniforms bloodstained by war will be all be burned and they will be fuel for the fire. So you see, it's easy for the Pharisees to misread the Bible. They misread it because they thought that Jesus, the Messiah, was going to come and, like David, was going to slay Goliath. Except that Goliath was Caesar. Goliath was Herod. Goliath was the evil king that they had because they wanted to set up a what? A temporal kingdom. What do I mean by temporal kingdom? Temporal means of the day. See, David was the king, and he was the king for 30 years or whatever it was. And then he died, and that was the end of David. He was the anointed one of God, and and he brought prosperity during his time. But after his time... Well, they had the sons who weren't that good. But yet the Bible prophesies that the Messiah would be like David because his rule and his dominion would not be good, but would be awesome and it would be eternal. And so the thing is, if we read the Bible two-dimensionally, we get this idea that what? That God just wants to what? Give us good times here on earth. We just live our lives. You know, we come to church a little bit. We give some money. We feel good about ourselves. It is a temporal kingdom. That's what the Pharisees thought, and that's what it's easy for people to do today. What do people do? The average person looks for the wide road because the wide road is the temporal kingdom. The wide road is the road of today. The wide road is of what is what we feel, what we want today. But the, the Messiah came for an eternal purpose, which is to set us right with God, to bring in a new form of government, We'll talk about that in a minute. And a rule that would be good and right forever. Not something short-term, but something long-term. Just as it's easy to misread Jesus' call today. People do it all the time because they read, it, they read the Bible from a surface perspective. They understand God from a temporal, short-term perspective. When they have a brokenness in their life, they go to God superstitiously. They smack the Bible. They kiss the Bible. They rub it. You know, hoping that the Bible, when they touch it, will rub off on them. They want a temporal solution. The Pharisees want a temporal Messiah. They wanted a David who would go and take the stone and smack Caesar upside the head, smack Herod upside the head, kill them, and have a good time for Jerusalem during those years. But God had a totally different plan. 
that would be long-term and forever, that he would free people from the yoke of slavery from forever. Now, let me just mention this. Here's something interesting. The poetic use of the rod and boots reveals that the Messiah will utterly destroy his enemies so that no more weapons will be needed. They misread it because they misread, they just read it for the serpent. Listen, verse 5. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. Well, let me tell you something. You guys know what it was like to be in the Assyrian army circa, say, 1000 B.C.? Anybody know what it was like to fight as an Assyrian? <laughs> they didn't have shoes. Almost none of them had shoes. Uh, the rich ones had sandals. But this is the only occurrence in the whole Old Testament of the word boots. Now, today, we use the word boots. We go down to DFW and we buy boots, right? That's really cool, you know? Uh, and we can buy them cheap, right? That's why we go down to DFW, right? And, and so <clears throat> we don't think anything of boot, but this is the only time the word boot ever appears in the Old Testament. Why? Because a boot was a something that only princes and kings and landed nobility wore into battle. And you know what? You killed a prince or a duke or something like that. They didn't have those classifications, but just bear with me. You killed a duke in battle. You know what the first thing you did? You picked up, you pulled his boots off his feet and put them on your own feet. Because I'll tell you what, fighting in boots is a lot better than fighting barefoot. No more stepping on swords. No more stepping on arrowheads. No more stepping on any of that kind of stuff. That saved your life. But you know what? The Bible here for those who listen, say what? That Christ, the Messiah, will come and he will burn all that stuff. Why? Because it's not needed anymore. The Messiah would not come to establish a temporal kingdom that would last for a day, a weekend, even a lifetime, but an eternal kingdom wherein the enemies will be so utterly defeated, which, by the way, the enemies is not Herod, it's not Caesar. The enemy is who? Sin, right? will be so utterly defeated that no more weapons will be needed. And you can get rid of all that junk because we don't need it anymore. So here's what happens. Again, the challenge for us today, if we listen to the prophecy, is to believe that God established his Messiah, not for a temporal, short-term gain, but for a long-term solution to our lives. Remember, the wide road, Jesus talks about the narrow road and the wide road, right? The wide road is to trust in God for today, to trust in God to fix our lives today, to, to just superstitiously believe that if we rub the Bible enough, we pet it enough, we say our prayers enough, that our lives can be better here, and that's all that there is. But conflict will continue to ensue as long as the world lasts. But the long-term, narrow solution is to believe that God has set things right and that his kingdom will reign forever. And that's the difference. That's what separates us who believe in Christ as the king from the Pharisees, the wide road. Let's talk a little bit further here. The Bible foretold Jesus' victory as well. So the Bible says this, For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make that happen. A little bit of irony there at the end, but we'll talk about that. Mary's baby would be given authority over all people. See, what's happening here is that God is saying, listen, that Mary's baby would be the one who is going to be the king. We talked about this last week, right? Remember, we talked about that there was a king. We told the story last week there was a king 
and the king was, actually, there's a people, the people loved God, they wanted, they were just small people, they wanted God in their lives, right? And so they cried out for a hero, for a king, oh God, send us a hero, send us a king, right? And this little kid stepped up, took a rock, smacked Goliath upside the head, cut off his head with his sword, right? And they had a king, woohoo! And the king was awesome, and everybody rejoiced in the kingdom, but then the king got you know, sort of old and fat and wore white jumpsuits and, you know, didn't really work anymore. And so he had kids and just continued on and, yeah, I know. Uh, just continued on and the, the, the kingdom fell apart. And the, king, and the people for a thousand years hoped that there would be a king who would be the once and future king who would come back and would rescue them and would be the hero that they dreamed of, right? And he would pull the sword out of the stone and, you know, he would sit on the throne of Gondor, whatever. You know, it's all taken from the Bible. Because that one king is Jesus. The once and future king who came to establish a government and a rule and a nation of people who are his people is where it's at. Mary's baby would be given authority over his people. The Messiah will be given the right to lead based on his unique qualities and on God's decision. You know, he was the once a future king because he was of the royal bloodline. He was of the royal bloodline. You know, here's the funny thing. Uh, because I lived in England for a while, sometimes I read the English papers because they're really funny um, from an American perspective because a lot of times they get in these huge arguments over who the right king should be, like if Queen Elizabeth dies and that sort of thing. Um, and they talk about this person abdicated in 1514 and his children live in exile now as a, as a, in the duchy of whatever. In, uh, in Germany, and they should be the king after Elizabeth, and, you know, it's all just, like, this crazy level of politics that I don't even understand, because we don't have kings here, and you know what, but the funny thing is, is that the, the, the similarity kind of ends there, because Jesus is the, of the bloodline, and he is the rightful heir to the throne, but even more specifically, that he was given the right, light, right to lead because of his qualities and because of God's decision for him. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles that speak of what God will do through Jesus. By the way, in the ancient world, just as in the world today, sovereigns, monarchs, kings, they had titles. I don't know if you know this or not, but like the King of England, uh, I know this is not a king, but just bear with me for the sake of the point of here. The King of England has titles, meaning he is like the King of England. He's also the Duke of Chutney. And he's like the Lord Protector of the whatever, right? And uh, it's made news a couple years ago because Prince Charles in England, uh, he, one of his titles is Defender of the Faith. And so when he wanted to be PC and make it cha try to change it to Defender of the Faves or Defender of Faves or whatever, something like that, so it includes everybody. And people got really torqued because, of course, people who believe it should be Christian uh, you know, rather than just anything, they were like, you know, you can't do that, you're messing with history, whatever the case may be. But here's the thing, the Bible is using these divine, these titles that express uh, Jesus's, the Messiah's divine qualities, that Jesus will be the wonderful counselor, that he will be the eternal father, that these divine titles, these express who Jesus will be and the power that he has. And of course, most importantly, Jesus becomes the Messiah because God chooses for him to be the Messiah. Listen, really critical here. Many scholars, and myself also, believe that when we get to heaven, it will be Jesus and not God on a throne who we will see. And that's the problem. 
Listen, we've been talking about the once and future king and about Aragorn sitting on the throne or Arthur and the sword in the stone because all those are, the, 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 the turning points of those myths are all taken from the Bible. Everywhere where it prophesies about Jesus, it says he will be the once and future king of the house of David. And you know what? What does the king do? When you go and you live in the fantasy world, you live in that place where the king is there and you see the king in the castle. All right, they, ha- they helped me in this first service. You see the king in the castle, and he waves like, is it like this, right? They helped me in the first service do this, right? I couldn't do it. I didn't know how to do it. Maybe that's a good thing, right? Thanks, Lumiere. And the king is waving, right? You want to know what the lie is? You ready for the lie? The lie, the wide road that everybody believes is that this guy waving is going to be God on his throne. Or the God or a God on a throne. But that is not who it's going to be. Uh-uh. Because the government of God will be on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus is the monarch. He's the king. And so the king is Jesus. Jesus is the one who will be there doing this. And my friends, that's the problem. You know why that's the problem? Because so many people in our world are like this. Their, their, their statement is this. Is that, hey, you know what? I believe in God, and that's good enough. Because when I get to heaven, God's going to be okay with that. I'm going to be there, and God's going to be seated on his throne, and we'll work it out then. But that is not true according to the Bible. Why? Because Jesus is the king. And if you are not a part of Jesus' kingdom here, you will not be a part of Jesus' kingdom there. If you don't recognize him as sovereign here, you will not see him as sovereign there. That's the difference. Jesus is the problem. Jesus is the reason why people reject God. Because they cannot make Jesus into their own image. And so this is the problem. This is why the road is unfortunately narrow. Is because People will try to get a generic God. But my friends, a generic God doesn't care about you, and a generic God uh, doesn't really have any... It's just generic. It's all vanilla. There's nothing to it. But Jesus is the one who came, who was the thousands and thousands-year-old answer to prophecy. He was the Messiah who was born in Bethlehem. He was the once and future king, rose, took the sword out of stone, sat on the throne of Gondor, killed the emperor, whatever metaphor you want to use, it's all in the Bible. They took it from the Bible. And he was the one who was the seat of the government. And by the way, government doesn't mean like bureaucracy like we have now, but that he will be the one who is the one who organizes and holds together our existence and our lives in this world, but more importantly, in the world to come. And he is the one that we see when we will get to heaven. So here's the thing. The thing is this, his leadership will be defined by eternal goodness. You know, I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, but when a king, when the kings of Assyria, we know this archaeologically, but when the kings of Assyria would assume the throne, they did something totally unique, right? I mean, this is going to blow your mind. They said, hey, I'm now the king, and I'm going to give you, I'm going to be a good king, and I'm going to give you lots of food to eat, and there's going to be lots of blessings. That's totally unique and rare, right? Every king and politician since the dawn of mankind has always said what? I'm going to give you everything you ever desire. I'm going to make lots of promises that I have no intention of keeping. Now, I don't want to descend in too much in the political, but let's just be honest. Every single politician of every single stripe, every single king that's ever been born has always promised lots of stuff and has never fulfilled it, right? 
The Assyrian kings, they would say, oh, we talked about this the first week, they would say, I am from days of old, which meant what? I have divine, I'm a divine hero, I'm a warrior god, and number two, that I'm going to bring goodness into the land. But in the meantime, they were slaughtering and killing and doing whatever the heck they wanted to do. And it doesn't matter whether you're a king or a politician or whatever, but rulers have always done that. They've always done that. They've always done that. But is it possible that all of the prophecies in the Bible are solely focused on one true, real leader, king, sovereign, Lord, who will bring goodness and justice to the world? Not in a temporal way, not right now, not everything figured out this moment. Well, I mean, it is right now, but it's not solely right now. But that for all eternity, we'll set up a kingdom, we'll set up a government, we'll set up a dwelling place, as the New Testament says, whereby we are able to live and dwell with him in peace and harmony, where the, where the implements of conflict and sin, the boots, the rods, those things, we don't need because we will be able to love each other without any sin and rebellion and brokenness affecting that love for each other. That, my friends, is the prophecy of Christmas and the prophecy of the Bible, that there will be a once and future king who will set up a kingdom or a government that will be one of goodness, eternal goodness and eternal peace that, that will be for his people. And you know what the ironic thing is? Is that we read, we cut out the Bible, you know, we cut out the parts we like, but, the, but he even ends here, the prophecy of Isaiah ends here with this, which is, well, it doesn't end, but the idea ends here, which is the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies will make this happen. And just so people in the ancient world didn't miss it, you know what, what Isaiah is saying here? Is that God's own army is going to make sure that this is what happens, right? So he's using even a military term here to describe how God is willing to set up his government. That peace will prevail even if he has to make it prevail because God is going to send his Messiah who is going to, and nothing can trump that. No evil king, no army, no nothing is going to trump God and his establishment of a kingdom in Jesus. And my question for you today is, are you trusting in a generic God and looking for temporal, today, blessing and superstition? Or are you trusting in Jesus as your sovereign, as your once and future king for all eternity, that he will be the eternal king of your life? Let's pray. God, we just come before you this morning, Lord, and I just want to give everyone an opportunity here Maybe there's someone here for the first time who has never said, God, I, I don't want to just generically trust in a God, but I want Jesus to be the sovereign of my life. I, I want for his peace to reign in my life for all eternity. If you're here and for the first time you want to say that, just lift up your hand. Anyone here this morning? Anyone here this morning? Okay, and for all of us here this morning, Father, my prayer for us is that we would not just trust in a generic God, but that we would believe and put our faith in Jesus as sovereign Lord of our lives. That, God, there is more to this life than just conflict and trial and stress and fighting. That, Father, those things are temporal, they are of this time, but, God, that you have desired and you have prophesied for thousands of years there is coming an end to that. We don't know when it's going to be, but we do know that you have established your king and that your kingdom is coming to pass. 
And God, we pray this morning that we would be a part of that kingdom for all eternity. That we would not look for the superstitious of today to, to fill our needs, but the wide road, but that, Father, we would go towards the narrow road and we would trust in Jesus for our entire life and our entire eternity. God, we pray this morning that we would commit our lives to you, you would be Lord, so that when we stand before you one day, that Jesus, our sovereign, would be there and we would have relationship with him. In Jesus' name.